Spreading faster than a case of the clap in a trailer court. Able to shatter eardrums within a 666 mile radius. A podcast more brutal than all the rest. It's Murder Metal What's up, guys? Doing that thing. And what is going on, everybody? Got everybody here tonight. Got me and Chris and All Joey in studio. and CK's on the fucking mic with us. Hell yeah. How's it going, CK? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing awesome. good, man. Fuck yeah. Joey, you doing all right over there? Doing great. Awesome. 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 I just uh, got on vacation. Yes, oh, sir. Oh, that's yes, even sir. better. Yeah, like, yeah. Vacation work, mode. Like, yep. Nice. What a way to kick it off, doing a little Murder I, Metal I Man. I'm stoked. Dude, I've been on vacation I'm, for the last year and a half. I was going to say, <laughs> right, CK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yours is more like a sabbatical, though, I think, yeah, than yeah, a vacation. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Eventually, <laughs> i got to go back to work. As but you're employed by Murder Metal Mayhem, though, so you are... You know you're, uh, you're balling now. You're busy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I don't I don't get paid any money in case anybody's listening to Yeah, that. right? That's <laughs> but right. But you get money for this. You, you get do, a jar you of peanut butter coming, though. Yeah, I got I, 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 I got a jar of peanut butter. CK, CK works a lot, though. He's been battling the cancer. That's and right. Going right. through a lot. To, that's right. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Working that's hard. Right. Yeah, working so hard. it ain't like you're just relaxing like, like no, some of sure. these folks out here. That's for sure. Now, we wanted to do a special episode this week, uh, something we've not done, a topic we've not done before. Um, we've done bonus episodes on single topics before, but this time we're going to do it about a person that has nothing to do with serial killers nothing to do uh, with at all. Crime in his own in his own right. Right. I mean, like he's a, a, a hero. Crime is going on around him. Yeah. Um, but it does have to do with true crime. And I think that uh, I think you guys, uh, when you're done listening to this episode, will agree that certainly a topic that falls within our our realm here. Now, we know, of course, September 11th. Uh, the episode that we're doing now is is a in with that in mind is this coming Friday, the day after this episode goes live, um, and it's obviously a day that none of us are ever going to forget. Um, and we considered doing something like this before, but for whatever reason, it just didn't quite work out. Well, we came up with other ideas or something. Yeah, kind of just put it off a little bit, but we're going to do it. Yeah, and, you know, this is the 19th anniversary of that terrible day. I almost thought to wait and do it next year, but I thought, you know what, I really felt like doing it now, um, and we did think I, I, that it's a good time to do it. What was that, CK? I, 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 th- I think it's right now it's the perfect time to do it. Yeah, yeah I, I do too, with, honestly. With, the every, way, with everything that's going on. Yeah, right, there's a sure. lot of really negative stuff going on. The pandemic, the riots, the looting, all the political crap. I mean, it's ridiculous. 2020 has been just a straight up kick in the nuts so far, you know, so Zinga. we wanted to do something positive and hopefully that you, some of you might find actually inspiring. Um, I know a lot about this story I have for a very long time and I'm very anxious to share it. Anytime I have the opportunity to tell the story of the individual we're going to talk about here tonight, I, I do like talking about it because it's something that most people could 
never even dream of being in the situation right. that he was in, you know? It's calm and everything. Multiple yeah. situations. Yeah, yeah multiple, for multiple sure. situations. So tonight we're going to do the entire podcast on a, on a single person. Um, but, you know, he's such an important part of our country's history that he certainly deserves it. And while he is not, as Chris correctly pointed out, the one doing any crimes or, or anything like that, he was amidst the sheer chaos of September 11th and rose to the occasion in a big way. But even going back before that, I mean, Rick Rescorla is the person we're talking about. Um, he was a decorated Vietnam vet. Um, and for that alone, he would be called a hero to anybody that served with him. Um, but he even stepped up bigger on September 11, 2001, as the head of security at Morgan Stanley in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Um, his bravery saved 2,700 people that day. And that's some fucking, that's some badass shit, especially yeah. everything. Yeah. It How is. How he organized it and everything was perfect. Yeah. Fucking. I mean, the way he pulled this off is just incredible. And we're just going to do our very best to tell the story of a man and, and his heroic acts. And as I said, with September 11th, we did do a podcast. Uh, it's been a while ago on Osama bin Laden. And obviously, September 11th was part of that conversation. But this time, a much different conversation from somebody that actually was in the towers uh, while this was going down. Now, I have a very personal tie-in with this story, and a few of them, actually. I'll explain it as, we, as the story unfolds. Um, and this is a little bit of a different topic for us to do, but when almost 3,000 Americans lose their lives on a single day like this um it is certainly something that murder metal mayhem can do so uh, yeah i don't know you guys agree with me i oh, know yeah. oh, i kind of threw this one at you so that's cool i'm glad you guys are on board uh thanks to i don't our... want to do it no more <laughs> yeah i'm walking out of here <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, thanks to our sponsor spellboundeffectsandart.com uh those guys are so amazing uh they have a great Badass online catalog, catalog. Yeah. Chris, uh, I know we've been talking about Spike, Spike and, and the, the lamp and the fucking forearm. And the forearm. Just amazing stuff. Uh, if you dig Super sick, dark, disturbing artwork. and The lamp's been collecting the uh, spider web. I've noticed that. It yeah. looks pretty badass I like noticed that, too. It. Yeah, I'm just leaving them alone. Yeah. So <laughs> spellboundeffectsandart.com to uh, check that out. And, of course, thanks to all of you guys listening. We really appreciate the support. The numbers keep rolling in. And you guys just just rule, and we really do appreciate that very much. So, all right, well, Chris, we got a lot on our plate tonight. So, what yeah. do we need to do, brother? Let's get our hardcore American hero on. Hell yeah! Uh, 
Low 12, a little song that we wrote called A Hero's Last Stand, which is, of course, about Rick Rescorla. Uh, the song was played by my former band, Low 12, for anybody not familiar with what I did before this. Uh, that was on our Splatter Pattern album. Uh, we'll talk a bit about the stuff at the beginning that you heard as the story unfolds. So you heard some guys singing in the background, and then the song started. We'll explain that. It's uh, actually a recording from 1965 in Vietnam. Very, very interesting. So uh, soldiers of the 7th U.S. Cavalry singing in a small bar as mortar shells are going off in the distance. Pretty cool stuff. Now, uh, Chris, Joey, CK, I figured you guys were not as familiar with Rick Rescorla's as I was at the beginning, but I'm just blown away at how more people don't know about this story chris what do you think about i mean that's a lot of uh, people to say for like very few people know who he is i didn't really know much about him until that song you guys had that song on the splatter pattern exactly that's what the first thing that i ever heard about the dude was after that song okay that's cool so then i looked into it after that and then when we started doing the episode obviously i've put more depth into it but yeah and you explain the song is the first time i ever heard of the dude that's cool that's, that's cool what makes me excited Joey. about this episode too because it's one of the ones like i said yeah i was telling I, ck that yesterday i like coming was, in here and just hearing you know every now and then one of us has a little more information about a topic than the other and right. it's cool because we can hear that and then you know add our two cents whatever so this time it's me coming in here and you tell it in its entirety how you want to tell it and i'm going to learn off that as well right. as what i've learned too sure so yeah. very cool very yeah i mean it's it's really good and i hope our listeners yeah. also you appreciate know, that. that ck what do you think about it i like like you no know, joey and, and um chris i never heard of this guy until your the, the low 12 cd came out and, and you had the song about him and i went back and i researched a little and um it's kind of real it's, it's pathetic that nobody knows yeah know who who this person is and right. you know it's kind of it's kind of you know it's, it's sad it's it's really sad it's a sad story it is because we know that, about um, the kardashians you know. but we don't know about rick rescorla <laughs> you know what i mean right Just right pathetic, right you know? that that's how that's how messed, messed up our culture is at yeah. times now some of you may have seen the movie we were soldiers uh, the one with mel gibson that movie was based on a book by Joe Galloway and Hal Moore that was called We Were Soldiers Once and Young. So that's the name of the book. When I was in the Army from 91 to 94, I was actually in the 7th Cavalry as a Cavalry Scout, and I was stationed at Fort Hood in Texas. Um, Now, a scout in the Army is kind of like what the Marines do with recon. They do the reconnaissance for the rest of the troops to find out where the enemy is, plotted on a map so they can be exterminated, uh, to put it bluntly. Um, So we were all made to read the book, um, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, to understand the history of our unit, uh, because the 7th Cav has a very storied history going all the way back to General Custer in the Battle of Little Bighorn. Right. When we used to march in parades, our battle, you know, they call it the guidon with your flag, has the streamers of all the battle campaigns you were in, and ours had Little Bighorn on it. And that's pretty impressive when you see that much of a history. Um, so it was very cool to read the book. Um, the book is a harrowing uh, account of the first two major battles in Vietnam in 1965, and it was the first time 
that the army used what they call the air cav um, to do, you know, to you know to act in in a in actually a war. bring the soldiers in to yeah battle, it wasn't just the theory it was actually put into place right and the movie gets into the first battle um rick arrived at the tail end of the first battle to help reinforce the troops and beat back the north vietnamese um his battalion gets into an even bloodier battle the following day which is the second part of the book his heroism was legendary in the cavalry, and anybody that was in the 7th Cav knew all about Rick Rescorla. His name was talked about frequently. Now, we were lucky enough to meet the author, uh, Joe Galloway and Hal Moore, um, uh, the colonel who led the 7th Cav that day. Um, so Joe Galloway, if you've watched the movie, he's played by Barry Pepper, I think that's his name. And he's like a writer, a journalist, and he wants right. to go with them, and they take him with them. That was Joe Galloway. Um, and then, of course, Hal Moore, the colonel, who later became a general, was the, the highest-ranking guy there. And so they came to Fort Hood every year uh, during the first Cavalry reunion, um, and they would come and speak about the book. And it was very interesting. The book was out by then, but not the movie. Now, little did I know that, you know, almost 20 years later, I'd be writing a song about this guy um, who was part of that conversation. Um, uh, it was funny, though, when Hal Moore talked about it, um, he said they were going to have a movie coming out about the book. And we were joking around about it and said, who's going to play you in the movie? And he's like, well, Mel Gibson, of course. Because at the huh. time, Mel Gibson was like right. the action yeah. star. Yeah, you know? yeah. And we all laughed like, ha, ha, ha. And then like years later, I'm sitting home watching TV and I see this movie trailer come yeah, out and I'm like, we were soldiers. And hell it's a fucking no. It's Mel Gibson <laughs> playing hell, hell more. That's freaking awesome. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. So that's crazy. Um, so it's just amazing. But now Joey, as a songwriter, it is always a unique experience when you can use stuff from real life and kind of use it in a song, and I'm sure you can relate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially what I do with Gormeyer, I mean, that's basically what I do is I do recollections of things that I see around me. Right. Things that are happening. Party. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and I just put it into, you know, musical sure. form. And as far as, as musicians go and stuff, some of my favorite for sure and always will be are the storytellers. Yeah. Somebody that's going to fucking, I can read, I can sing along or read along with their lyrics or whatever and get into what they're talking about into a fucking, like a story. Right. That's always going to be the best one. So. Yeah, I'm uh, the same way. That's why I know, Chris, you're not a fan of King Diamond, but me and CK <laughs> are. Um, and he's one that tells a story, yeah. you know. There's a lot of bands, you know, Queensryche did it with Operation Mind. Right. Yeah. Really like that kind of stuff. It to me, it takes it to a whole different level when you can do that, um, and that's why I like to do with Low Twelve. Where we had a couple albums like that, so that kind of thing, as you also, I enjoy as well. Yeah. Now, Chris and CK, I know you guys have seen the movie We Were Soldiers. I've what never is, seen it. Oh, you haven't seen no, it. No, I've never seen it. CK, you watched it. What did you What did you think about it? I mean, it's any war movie is rough, but this one's especially brutal, oh, yeah. man. I mean, it, it was it was it was definitely brutal. It's probably the brutalest one I've I've ever seen. I mean, I've seen some because I was in this like like this thing where I was watching Vietnam movies right. all the time, and yeah. that was probably one of the most brutalest ones I've yeah. seen. Um, you know, and as far as reality of it, it, seemed like it was it was definitely 
showing the reality of what Vietnam right. was, right. along with you know ones like Hamburger Hill oh, and, yeah. and um and um Full Metal Jacket. I'm yeah. sure, you know, along those lines. Yeah, and I think the one thing that was cool about We Were Soldiers is they show what it was like back home when they're going to the wives of the guys in yeah. Vietnam and telling them their husband's dead. Yeah. That's messed up. And but they that show that in the movie how the Colonel real. Moore's wife was going from door to door yeah, telling all these other wives their yeah. husbands weren't coming home. And that's some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, that would know? be so, a rough job to have to do. Yeah, and that was the, the really, I thought, good message about that movie was that they showed that side right. of it, you know, side you maybe aren't as familiar with. It was um, cool uh, when they were talking, you know, Rick Rescoro basically like knew the movie was coming out, book, you know, all that stuff. But he was so humble about it. He never wanted to see it or or read anything because he he didn't. He said he didn't, uh, didn't feel comfortable right reading about himself in that light. And he never yeah. considered himself a hero. He said the men that lost their lives. Right, right. He always said that. Yeah, and he's yeah. The, on the cover of the book. Right, right. Yeah, so yeah, that's literally on the cover of the book. Yeah. But I, I just thought it was no, and, and, cool. he, and he took that. And he took you know the lives that are lost. He took that to his, to yeah. his he grave. He yeah. was. He did. It haunted he him. Always, um, it definitely haunted him. Yeah. So Rick is actually born Cyril. Cyril Richard Rescorla in Cornwall, which is in southwest England, on May 27, 1939. Now, he hated the name, the name Cyril. I don't know why. Why would you hate um, that I'm name? I'm having a hard time even saying it. Right? <laughs> um, and as a young boy, he would marvel at the U.S. soldiers he saw in England during World War II because they were training in Cornwall for the upcoming D-Day invasion in Normandy. He loved that shit, dude. He did. He was fascinated by it. He loved the way people respected them. He loved the way the uniforms looked. He wanted to be called Rick because it sounded more American. So uh, he went by Rick ever since. Um, He dreamed of being a paratrooper, and he knew the American military was the place to be if he was ever really going to do that. So uh, that was just kind of a dream of his. Uh, now, 1956, at the age of 17, he joins the British military, which was required at the time for all boys to do for two years. That'd be crazy. Uh, there's a lot of countries like that. I know Korea's like that. There's there's several of them in Europe and in Asia that are that way. Um, he fought with them in Cyprus and then joined the police in Rhodesia and fought against the communists. So he was all about fighting against communism. Like all the way back in the day, which is... All- insane that it came to yeah. the point that that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, it's very interesting how the communism then later becomes radical Islam. Very, very, very interesting the way he just was just plagued by that. Just and really he, bothered. Even way back then when he was in Rhodesia, he was uh, <clears throat> you know, decorated Oh yeah, an honored member of the, oh, yeah. of the unit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, He stood out everywhere he went. Right, he was yep. the best everywhere he went. Um, he was the he man. Was. Even like in school and shit, he was still like, they like got all the girls loved him and led all the boys is basically mm-hmm. what they said. Like yeah, yeah, just an amazing person, man. just a leader in general. Yeah, natural leader. Um, so after three years of that, he returned to England and then went to work for Scotland Yard. But I read that he hated the paperwork. <laughs> uh, he missed the fight. Uh, men who fought alongside of Rick said he was born for war and definitely earned the nickname Hardcore. Hardcore. Uh, well, because that how, wasn't his name. That's just what he was. Yeah. I mean, well, they were like, never saw somebody so fierce, so intense, 
and so calm in the chaos, which in a war situation, I know from I never was in war, but going through basic training and stuff, obviously that's what they're trying to get you ready for. And they try to create that chaos as much as possible and then see how you react to different things. Some people can't deal and they curl up in a fetal position and they just can't do anything. And then some people like him just like act like it's nothing and just do their thing. So pretty amazing. As we continue, you'll find out he did till his last day. Yeah, exactly. Literally his last day. Right. Now, in Rhodesia, Rick met his longtime friend Dan Hill, who would later convince him to leave England and come to the United States. At first, he wanted to join the Marines, but he changed his mind. He joined the Army instead. Um, And Dan tells a great story of Rick saving a village in Rhodesia from a lion. I guess there was this lion on the loose. And he just goes and gets his double-barrel shotgun. Put put one shell in it. (laughs) He's pretty cocky that he was going to kill it in one shot. Pretty much charged him. He just blasted it like, fuck. Yep. Bam. That's crazy. And the villagers were just enamored by Rick and and told him that it was good luck to save the teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he takes the teeth and made a necklace of the teeth and the shotgun shotgun shell. Holy shit. And then wore that around his neck all the time. You know what? I'm just putting this together. I think they made a movie about that. It's probably based off of that. Oh, wow. Called uh, fucking... It's not a cry in the dark. That's the one with fucking the dingo ate the baby. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about, but I can't go- think of Ghost in the Dark. Yeah, Ghost in the Dark. Yeah, Ghost in the oh, and wow. I think that the, the oh, dude that funny. comes in to take him out, that's the whole shit that happens. Oh, wow. And he ends up ta- oh, Interesting. Now I'm going to have to go fucking yeah, watch that. Yeah, now you have to go watch right? that, see if it is based on that. Maybe that's a <laughs> thing, Loosely though, based off the story of Risk or Scorlet. Yeah. It could be. That's fucking cool. Um, in 1963, oh, yeah. he started basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey. Um, and he would later become an officer and attended Officer Candidate School, which is known as OCS, uh, and then did airborne training at Fort Benning, Georgia. And he would promptly be shipped out to Vietnam as a second lieutenant in the 2nd Battalion of the 7th Cavalry. So that's kind of how he got to where he was. And he, he wasn't even an American citizen. No, no he wasn't. No. Yet. No, he came from England and just you know, said, I want to join the, yeah. the war. I want to I go. Want to be you in know, the war. And they're like, go. hey, we're taking recruits. Come yeah, on with exactly. it. exactly. And I think they care. gave him his he, citizenship he, he, in exchange. Yeah, he, he lived at, uh, I, so I read how he lived at the YMCA until he enlisted. Yeah. yeah, I think I read that too. Now, Chris, at this time, Vietnam is ramping up, and Rick would definitely see some action because, like you said, there was a shortage. So they're looking for anybody that was willing to go over there, you know, and, and fight. And he saw action yeah, right out of the box. Yeah, he saw action quick. And like we were saying, uh, like everybody in his platoon and other platoons and uh, higher ups than him instantly noticed, like, man, this guy. Yeah. Is a fr- he's, he's hardcore. Intense. He's, yeah. he's going to do action. Right. He always let. He he was never behind them, telling them what to do or whatever. Right. He'd be out there freaking right in the front. right in the front with his rifle going. He, he, he was, ready he was to just take care of business, and that that's what I th- I'm thinking about him. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. Never right. hiding behind Na- your guys. Natural born yeah. leader. Let's go. Follow me, boys. We're going. Yeah, because some some people would lead from the rear, right, and be on the safe you know side, but he's right. like right at it's point, like, no, you know, I like right. Up there. in the front, he wasn't going to do anything. He wasn't going to have his men do anything that he wasn't right. going to do. Exactly. exactly. Now Rick would serve under Colonel Hal Moore, the person I mentioned earlier that would come to Fort Hood every year, uh, the guy that Mel Gibson played. 
Uh, later, Colonel Moore, of course, became General Moore. Uh, together, they would take part in the first major battle of Vietnam, where the Army would try out how the air cav was actually going to work for the very first time. And if you saw the movie We Were Soldiers, they talk about this a lot at the beginning, because he's, I know Mel Gibson, you know, is you know, playing the part of Hal Moore, is you know, concerned, like, am I going to be able to pull this off? Because yeah, right. you got Apaches and Cobras, I don't know about in Vietnam if they had those two, but... You got helicopters, like when I was in, it was Apaches and Cobras, Bradley fighting vehicles were the light reconnaissance tanks, and the M1A1 then later became the M1A2, the big ass kicker tanks as well. So all of that going on at one time definitely bringing it it's going to make your mind work like okay is everything in order like right what the hell, he was dude? just concerned um now joey back in the day you know general custer days yeah. this is all on horseback <laughs> right, right. so this is you know really stepping it up to to bring in helicopters and tanks and definitely bringing some whoop ass yeah a uh, lot of firepower there with all that going on I, you know it's i mean I mean, that's absolutely sure. It's fucking just the evolution of war, basically. Right. But it's it's kind of fucked up to think about, like, uh, with horses. So it's like the one thing you can't get a DUI on. You can, <laughs> you can take your horse to the bar if because... It can get because, itself home. Right. It has its own brain. So it's making its own decision. You know what I'm saying? Okay. That's, that's the, the technicalities behind it. Why okay. You, but you can get pulled over on a fucking lawnmower and get a DUI. Sure, sure. Anyway, so with that in mind, <laughs> now think about this. You're relying on this beast that you're riding on right. in this fucking war environment. Right. Holy shit! Back in the Custer days, like that, right. how many times are you spooked, fucking up you know? just because the horse spoon? You yeah, know what I'm exactly. Like, now, now you got a dude flying this machine. What if it breaks down? Which is yeah, you, less likely, I would think. Way yeah. less likely. I mean, it doesn't happen. And know, it was cool too at Fort much. Hood. They had the horse platoons and stuff. Yeah, still oh, like for yeah. show. And well, right, right, like parades parade and shit. Yeah, it was really cool. Um. So the battle would take place in the central highlands of Vietnam near the River Drang in November of 1965. Now, river in Vietnamese is I, I-A, um, but pronounced just I. So the battle was known as the Battle of I Drang. Now, while they met a huge resistance uh, from the North Vietnamese Army uh, that were dug into the mountains and had thousands of men waiting for us to arrive. So this is a bloodbath Um, You had helicopters dropping off and picking up the dead and wounded in what they call a hot LZ, which would be landing zone. And some of those pilots made dozens of these trips under enemy fire. I mean, talk about some fucking brass balls. Being able to land a helicopter, multiple everybody shooting multiple times. After the first time, you're just still like, okay, going to pick up more and coming back. There's some of them did dozens of them. Like one one, guy just got the Medal of Honor, like recently. One of those pilots just fairly recently, within a couple of years, just got, got his Medal, Medal of Honor, Honor for doing that. Nice. Which I'm like, what the hell did you wait that long for? Right? Yeah. 60, 60 yeah. years later. Now, CK, you watched the movie. You're talking about, as you mentioned, some fierce, fierce fighting. I couldn't imagine landing a helicopter in that. I mean, it was called the Valley of Death. Right. The, the, where they were fighting, and they weren't expected to come out no. alive. no. So, you know, basically, uh, flying a helicopter, you don't know if you're going to make right. it out. Yeah. Uh, 
they were know, outnumbered like four I, to got, one. Yeah, so yeah. it was crazy. And and and, he, and these were these were, these were young kids. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, I can't imagine you know this happening now and and huh. or. We'd be in. We'd be in some serious. We'd be in serious yeah. trouble. And the thing is, is the you Vietnamese know? had just beaten the French. The French had just getting their asses whipped right. over there. So these guys are cocky. Right. They were dug in, and they had a labyrinth of tunnels in this. That they mountain. already had. So when we got and, there, and was, they were very ready for pretty us. Pretty much prepared already. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a warfare we never knew. We never revolved in jungle warf- warfare before. It was a demarcation line before that, and you know the right. other wars. This one, it was something that America never was involved in. Right, so, and we wouldn't really have no, any place here in the U.S. you could simulate like uh, that. You know what no, I mean? That I could no. think of. Not, yeah, not without having to build something huge. Right, right. So as the afternoon wore on and our troops were nearly decimated, the 2nd Battalion arrives with Rick Rescorla. Uh, guys that he served with said he was a natural leader and came out of the helicopter ready to go. As bullets are raining down and bodies are dropping in every direction, and they told him that we were completely surrounded, Rick says, <laughs> yeah, like, good. good. We can attack from all directions. <laughs> yeah, we can attack in any direction we want. So uh, so that's a way to put a positive spin uh, yeah, yeah, on that. Exactly. Yeah. We're totally surrounded. Well, that's cool. We're just attacking <laughs> whatever way we want to go. aim away from each other? That's Fucking right. Start blasting off. Go. <laughs> and he starts getting his platoon to dig out foxholes deeper than the other uh, troops had done, and he put steps in them so they could raise up, shoot, and then get down down. deeper uh, and not get hit. Um, He also had him cut down the tall elephant grass because, as we've been talking about, CK brought up, you know, jungle warfare. We're fighting in elements that we're not going to see here in the United States. So they set up landmines around the perimeter that definitely would fuck up any NVA soldiers coming in. Um, and the fact that he's out there while all this chaos is going on, singing, yeah, he's just like drinking songs like, and all this stuff to just chill them out, just to keep their spirits up. You know, he had this booming voice, this savage fighting, and you just hear this guy singing. I mean, I would be like, <laughs> "What the hell is going on?" I mean, that would definitely, to me, be very unsettling. Joey, yeah. what do you think? I mean. Yeah, I mean, you it would probably take you by surprise, but I'm sure yeah, fucking you could uh you could feed off that energy with him though. Exactly. Oh yeah, and it, that's what happened. It, oh yeah. yeah, he was fucking getting everybody on that. It, it you were talking about, you know, him digging the foxholes deeper and creating the steps and all that. It's like, man, where's the motherfucker come up with something that fucking that quick, you know, that's yeah. right. been fighting think, since he was 17 exactly, though. That's it. He's like I got an idea. And he got taught in Britain. Right, and then he came over to the U.S. It's like, man, right. you're getting fucking two schools of fucking right knowledge military, right there, knowledge, military yeah. knowledge. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, and in Africa as well. Yeah. Now, um, Chris, I mean, it's hard to imagine being in some situation like that, tired, you know, wired up. You got this guy pumping you up, but you know, you know, you could die at any second. This guy's singing like Danny Rolling over here, you know. I mean, I haven't seen that movie, but I have seen like other war movies to where I could see my people being like fucking. Uh, this guy starts singing or whatever, and somebody just tripping out, just what are you doing? Stop right. like freaking out on him. Right. I could see some shit like that oh, happening yeah. too. Yeah, for sure. I-, I would be curled up in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not lying. <laughs> 
Now, Rick's battalion saves the day. They help beat back the enemy. But the following day, as I mentioned, would be even in a worse fight. The movie doesn't even get into that, but the book does. So I highly recommend reading it if this story interests you. Now, Rick would go on to complete his tour in Vietnam. He only lost, which is unbelievable, six men in the years he was in Vietnam. Just lost six guys. That's insane. But each one of them impacted him so greatly um, as as we've pointed out, he was bothered by it his whole life. He kept a journal with his thoughts about it. And his wife, Susan, said that he had bad nightmares about Vietnam and the men that he lost in those days leading up to September 11th, which is crazy. Um, and she knew, and he had said, I'm never going to leave anybody behind again, ever. You Not know, ever. Really messed with him that he lost those six guys. But holy shit, I mean, six guys... In the two or three years he was in Vietnam, it's pretty up, amazing. Straight that, up war. Yeah, is it? That's like that's like less than like probably a tenth of a yeah, percent. It's of unbelievable. Not this. It's it's ridiculous. It is, it is especially so in the, in the battles to, he fought in. Right. You know, and to, to him to feel guilty about losing only six men, I, I think it should be commended. Right. Uh, but he just wasn't that way. Now, he got a, no, from no, his time no. in Vietnam, he got a silver star, two bronze stars, a purple heart, and the Vietnam Cross of Gallantry. Um, he left duty in 1967 as a colonel, but remained a member of the Army Reserves until he retired in 1990. Um, he was put in the Infantry Officer Hall of Fame and was given the Presidential Citizens Medal posthumously in 2019 by Donald Trump. Um, it does make you wonder how much that necklace with the lion's teeth played in him being able to walk through the raindrop right, so many yeah. times. Man, because he didn't it's have crazy. it. crazy. He didn't have it he in the did tower. Not. He did not. He gave it to Dan Hill. Uh, soldiers would tell Rescorla for, you know, these soldiers would tell these Rick Rescorla stories. Generations, they would be told. And when the book was written, it just kind of immortalized it. Um, and I heard those same stories that many years later in, in 91 to 94. Uh, Joey, it's amazing. A guy like this with his accomplishments didn't even mention it to anybody at Morgan Stanley. You know, you would think that, you know, somebody that did that much stuff like, would be like, look at me. Here's my medals. Here's this. But they he was extremely s- humble. They always say that about the real people that were in the shit, though. Yeah. Well, and as we know, like, Rescorla, basically his whole life, he was, he didn't want no commendation for what he did. Right. He was doing what he did because it was what he felt was right in his heart, and he, he really believed that shit to the truest. Right. And so he was just doing what he needed to do as his part. And the fact that he carried that weight of losing you know, those six men, I just, I just don't think that it would ever come. I don't think, I think if somebody had known about him and had brought it up to him at work, you know, maybe it invited the conversation. I don't think he would have strayed from it. He was, no, I don't think so. But I don't think it was just something he just wanted to come out and talk about right, because right. he just wanted, yeah, he's, he was doing what he was doing for that day. Right. Which seemed to be how he always acted. Yeah, because he was still in the reserves when he was yeah. working there, so that's pretty amazing. I, I think, like, with somebody like him and, you know, other people I've heard who have made it through some, you know, terrible battles and things like that, um, it, 
everything that I've, I've noticed about those people is that they have an exact confidence that they are doing what they're doing. They're not likely to fucking uh, to freeze up at a second. You know what I'm saying? Right. They're they're very sure of their actions and what they need to do, and they're going to get through the situation uh, the best way that they know how. And they're not going to be in fear of of what could happen because they already know that could happen. And True. I think those people can push it behind their head, right, and, and face forward, and that helps them survive better. I think a lot of people maybe uh, get caught up because or or people that get killed in warfare probably was in a situation where they just uh, didn't see something or right. it was just a bad situation oh, sure. where they weren't paying attention and, and that sucks but you right. get somebody that's that aware like oh, yeah. he, he was mm-hmm. man that's just that's the difference right yeah there. it's amazing now um, he would go on to uh, the University of Oklahoma to study writing he got a degree in English <clears throat> then this guy goes to law school gets a law degree teaches <laughs> law in South Carolina, <laughs> publishes a textbook while he's there yeah. in his free time. He for real lived all over. He did, man. <laughs> <The> Unbelievable. <laughs> like, yeah. Holy fucking Did all life, sorts dude. of stuff. Yeah. In 1985, he left the profession for a higher-paying job at Morgan Stanley uh, at the World Trade Center, South Tower, floors 40 through 70. Uh, he was in charge of the safety of 2,700 people, and they were the largest employer in the World Trade Center now, yeah. CK or I'm sorry, Chris. That's a big responsibility, but he took it very, very seriously. Dude, 27 people is a huge responsibility. I'm rough with my kids, bro. Right. <laughs> yeah, 2,700. That's yeah, a lot 2, of people. 2,700 people. Yeah, is yeah. insane. And organizing the escape route, like knowing how to do it, right. Is, awesome yeah. yeah that's a shit ton of people i couldn't even imagine no and that being on your head all the time like how do i do this right because he was obsessed with their safety i yeah. mean he right. just would not rest and, you know? the, and what's you know he anticipated of course after the first bombing you know, right but he they said that he had anticipated somebody happened so he yeah. already had everything he knew ready yeah and that, man that's so important right it there. is man now, remember how uh, Rick felt about the communists and, and he fought so hard against them in Rhodesia and in Cyprus. Then, uh, as a U.S. Army veteran from Vietnam, you know, of course, fighting the North Vietnamese soldiers, which were, of course, communists, um, he also freaked out at the Pan, Pam Am, Pan Am flight that was that, taken down in Lockerbie, uh, 1988, uh, over Lockerbie, Scotland. Um, which was also a terrorism thing. Um, and that became kind of, in his mind, kind of replacing communism as the new threat in the world. So communism was a thing. And as terrorism with that Pan Am flight and all this stuff's going on in the world, now he's seeing, hey, the real threat here now isn't so much communism, but now it's this radical Islam, these terrorists, you know. And uh, he warned his employer uh, at the World Trade Center, hey, you know, we are a target for these people. They are definitely out there, and I think we, we have something to be worried about, but they wouldn't listen to him. Uh, so he brings in his buddy, Dan Hill, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, Dan, you know, and he looked at the security threats and felt that the parking garage, which at the time you could actually yep. park underneath right. the World Trade Center. Yeah. They thought that was a huge issue. You could have a van full of explosives parked next to one of those supports and take potentially take the damn building out. And guess what? 
And yeah. Somebody tried. That's right. And so Rick wrote this up to the Port Authority who owns the World Trade Center or or owned the World Trade Center. And uh, they felt it would cost too much money to to implicate. Bad decision. Yeah, very bad decision. So CK, of course, Rick and Dan Hill would be proven right with the 1993 bombing with the van packed full of explosives. Gee, now I wasn't living in the area at the time. You were working 30 minutes away. That must have been crazy, dude. Well, well, at that time I was working. Um, I was in Dan. I was. I was oh, in okay. Danbury. I'm thinking of 9/11. Um, gotcha. During 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 9/11, yeah. But you know, we're only 50 miles away from right. the city. So it's not no. that far, and, and it's kind of it's kind of scares the crap. Well, it out would, of you. yeah, because you're close, uh, you know. Um, because who knows? Was it just you know a, a one-time right. thing? Were were they going to plan on doing multiple ones around the around the sure. state area? Of who course, knew? right. I mean, even here, we were worried Chicago yeah, was potential, yeah. you know, right. hit. You know, we're only if you know. Two and a half hours away. Yeah, it'd be fucking. So yeah, I get you. Worried about like State Farm on a closer level. Yeah, that's true, dude. That's true. I mean, it was everybody. But for you living there, you know, I was already out here by then, uh, so I wasn't uh, wasn't there. It it definitely definitely brought it close. It was close to home, and yeah, it's um, it's it's a tough thing to talk about. Yeah, I I completely understand that. Now, during the 1993 bombing, it was discovered that the lights in the stairwell were very vulnerable because they were on the same circuit as the rest of the building. Uh, plus, they filled with smoke, uh, making it a nightmare to get out of there. Very congested, yeah, smoky, like two can't hours see anything. To get out of there, pretty much. Yeah, very, very slow. Uh, Rick was the last person out of the building that day in '93, and he vowed that the terrorists would come back to finish the job. He knew that the World Trade Center was a big target for these Islamic terrorists who felt, you know, it was a symbol of capitalism. And needless to say, the Port Authority moved uh, the parking from below uh, to avoid that from ever happening again. So, unfortunately, it took a few deaths because there were a few deaths, a lot of injuries, but only a handful of deaths, still too many. Um, And this terrible incident to then change it Okay, you're right. Let's move the parking from underneath and and do it differently, right. and to avoid that. So, anyway, so that's good. But Rick, of course, not content with hanging back and oh, hell no. not like, resting on his <laughs> there's laurels. Something else, like yeah. I gotta take care of these people. I mean, Jesus but, Christ, if you're if you already have got that in your mind anyway <coughs> that this is gonna happen, then all of a sudden that happens. You're right. just like, yeah, yep. you're possible. never gonna fucking yeah. tell me different. Exactly. You're you already opened up the vulnerability of of something right. happening there, so you obviously right. knew there was a bigger chance of of something else bigger happening than what happened in right. So he brings Dan Hill back, and together they looked at the threats. Uh, they actually called it Team Rescorla, which was Dan Hill, Rick Rescorla, and their friend Fred McBee. Fred's an author who I actually became friends with uh, when I get to that part of the story. But Fred is a really nice guy. Um, if you see the un- the video of the unveiling of the statue, you can see Fred. He speaks for a bit, but Fred's uh, a paraplegic. He was injured. He was a uh, before he was a writer, or maybe in his early writing days, he rode uh, like uh, Broncos, like oh. in the rodeo. Yeah. Oh, really? And he got hurt. I think that's how he got hurt. And yeah. so, yeah. So huh. anyway, Fred's a very interesting guy. 
Anyway, the three of them became Team Rescorla, and they would look at the issues and uh, and assess that they felt the, the big vulnerability was from the air, which is amazing. And that uh, they, they predicted that they did. They totally made the call. Um, they bought a cheap flight simulator program. Fred talks about this in the documentary. And he was like, I never used the flight simulator program before. I was dumb to it. I hooked it up to my computer, and I could very easily fly a plane into the World Trade Center. Right. It was extremely simple to do. It's such a big target, you can't miss yeah, it. you can't miss it. You know, so that's what they figured was they were going to have, like, they weren't thinking of jumbo jets, though. They were, they were like thinking of smaller small private planes yeah. packed yeah. with explosives, but not a 747 right, you know, with shit on totally it. Right, yeah. people on it. Right. So that that was a surprise. However, they really assessed that was the big threat. But of course, you know, Rick can't stop a plane from hitting the building. So he urged them, let's move out of here. We got to get out of here. Uh, Morgan Stanley said, look, our lease is until 2005. We can't. We're here. We're going to have to move. deal with it. Yep. So, Joey, I cannot imagine the frustration of trying to tell somebody, you know, yeah. these threats, like you said, right. already was right once, yeah. like uh, eerily right, and they didn't listen to him then, no. and then later had to comply. <laughs> now he's doing this to him again, and they're still like, ah, yeah. eh, whatever, man. Which, which, and, and what's fucked up? Why, why do they employ him there? Right for, for that reason, true, and and it's like he's That's telling you he's not fu- like a third party consultant. Right, he's he, an employee. Right, and he's telling you, look, this is. This is why I'm. It's not like he's a fucking accountant that's there. Right. That's like holy shit. He's the VP of security. Exactly. Like that's what he's right. doing. Yeah, th- this this is what yeah, he's trained right. so for. So it's fucked up that you wouldn't listen to something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and especially after the first one. Like, and I'm sure his employer knew of his military status because yeah, he was in the guard, so they would have had to let him go and yeah. stuff. So so yeah, so that's incredible to know the man is that decorated from war you hire him as your head of security and then you don't listen to him yeah uh, that's that to me is amazing so what rick decides to the only thing he can now do is train them and get them geared up to get out of the building so if you watch the documentaries about him the people that would go on and talk about you know the fire drills that he ran where you know you're on the phone working a deal because you're at Morgan Stanley, so you're there selling stocks and, yep. and doing all this financial trading. And here's this guy yelling at you to get off the phone and get up and do a fire drill. Nobody you wants to You get kind of aggravated, you know, and thought he was almost a little kooky about it. But, of course, they realized on September 11th how, how much thankful they were that he did, was yeah. that way. You know what I mean? He put fire marshals on every floor. He taught them how to be able to find the exits without light. He taught them, you know, if this exit's blocked, you go to this one. He basically Mapped showed them everything, exactly every what you would do in every spot. And whatever comes up, right. it would be like muscle memory almost, and you would just do it. Um, he had the lighting on the stairwells put on an emergency generator. Which, and, uh, duh, and put uh, ventilation in the stairwells so they wouldn't fill up with smoke. So he's learning from the mistakes. You right. know, unfortunately, not everybody would listen, or nobody would listen, I should say. 
Um, he drilled them until they just couldn't stand it anymore. Dude, I saw they'd like be on their cell phone and shit too, and he'd just seriously walk up to them while they're doing this drill and shut take their it. phone and yeah, yeah, let's go. Turn their phone off. Yeah, be like, no matter no. who they were, yeah, yeah, it, come on, this yeah, is happening. Executives and and everybody. Many thought he was crazy and almost obsessed about it because he talked about this so much. Um, and you know, he knew that they were going to come back. They didn't finish the job in '93. Um, he always told the employees to leave the building if you ever feel unsafe. No matter what anybody tells you, you do not hesitate. You get up and you get out of this building as quickly as possible in an orderly fashion. Don't push. Don't shove. Help each other. Be good Americans. Right. He pulled that you know, on September 11th, told them that. Now, of course, this would wind up saving their collective lives uh, on September 11th. But in 94, Rick is diagnosed with prostate cancer. He has the surgery to remove it. Uh, but in 98, he found out that it spread to his bone marrow, only given six months to live. But, you mean, CK, you're fighting with cancer. I've been through it. I mean, it's a brutal fight. Yep. And you know, you know, what this is like, especially when you're given grim odds like you were. Um, I was not nearly like you. But I was given 50-50 odds I would die before the summer was over, and that was pretty freaky. Um, I can't imagine with your odds uh, in the beginning especially. Um, but he fought, kept it in remission, got married a second time uh, in 1998 to Susan, who I got to know very well. Um, he was bigger than life. I mean, anything you read or see or hear about Rick, he sang, he wrote plays, you mean, you know, law professor, law degree, textbooks. I mean, oh, by the way, fought in a war. Yeah, Two really tours of Vietnam, a Silver Star, two brown. I mean, the dude is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, she talks about when she met there was, him. If there was ever a Superman, he Yeah, I mean, that it. story Susan tells of how she met him, he was running, running barefoot, barefoot on the concrete, like running like idea. a jogger, you know, and... And she said, why are you running in your bare feet? And he said he was writing a play or a book about uh, uh, Africans, yeah, and he wanted to know what it felt like to, to run, run in your bare, bare feet. feet. Yeah. So I think that's crazy. As a writer, I can appreciate the commitment to want to really know what, uh, what that's like. Um, speaking of that, well, I'll, I'll save that for another day. It's not appropriate with this conversation. <laughs> um, anyone that knew Rick, you know, knew that that's, that's how he was. And Susan just spoke so highly of him. The cancer returns. Rick is given a very bad prognosis from the doctors, uh, but he refuses to stop living life to the hilt. And he would often question, uh, Dan Hill talks about this, how he wondered, did I get every bit out of it? Like, could I have done anything else? You know, right. just wasn't content. Like, he felt like he was driven to do something else. And of course, we all know that he was, uh, which is just makes this story almost send chills up your spine, to be honest with you. Um, on September 11th, 2001, he wasn't even supposed to be at work. One of his guys needed the day off, and he was covering for him. So that even makes this that much more poignant. He covered for one of his employees. He's there, September 11th, um, and we know how this played out. 
with what happened that morning, the attacks were right after nine o'clock. So he right. would have been at work. He said they said he got there about seven. So he'd been there a couple hours. Excuse me. His office is on the forty-fourth floor of the South Tower. He looks out his window and he sees the North Tower with flames shooting out of it, paper flying everywhere, and it's he's not like, a good scene. "Oh boy, here we go." No. Okay, so Joey, he's got the Rescorla <laughs> mode going on yeah. of hardcore. Now it's on. Now we're not joking and playing around. Now, like this is the real thing. Right, and it's. Friend Bill was that his name had the uh, training class at two hundred and seven. Yeah, the other employee had the two hundred and seventy six yeah. employees. He was doing a training session. It was only their second day yeah. in the city when this Dude. happens, and he talks about it on that yeah, panel. Yeah, he talks of about how he got out of there and he saw or he heard Rick because of all his training. Yeah, he could hear Rick singing and, talks, and talking yeah. through the bullhorn and stuff. It's just crazy. So yeah, it's, Chris mentions a really good YouTube video that we all watched that has a panel and this bill skoyak is on there and he talks about uh he was in a training set headed a training session for morgan stanley and uh, just how how he perceived what rick did it's just an amazing story and then another employee an executive who was actually on the 44th floor with rick witnessed it like like hand in hand went through it with side him. by side crazy yeah. Um, everything that I've you know read about and learned about Rick Oscorla, one thing I always thought is that you know he wasn't supposed to work that day. He was covering for somebody. I think as soon as he would have seen what was happening, he would have went straight. He would have been there toward, anyway. Oh he yeah, yeah. He'd been yeah. like, I gotta go. He, he would have been oh, there yeah. in minutes. Oh, that's that's guaranteed. Yeah. I don't know how quick he could have got I there from Jersey. Like but he the same situation they ended up in would have happened regardless yeah he just might not have been there as quickly right but he would have been getting those people out and oh back, yeah you know yeah i couldn't imagine him sitting there and at home watching it on no, tv and like you said like felt like he was destined for something right that he was there for a reason there he knew it yeah so he knew immediately what's going on now as we remember from watching all the coverage they're telling the employees in the south tower relax it's okay it's cool we're safe it was the north tower just remain calm. They didn't, know if it was keep an, they didn't know there was another plane coming. Right. Of course. Accident as far as they knew. Yeah. So be calm. So of course Rick gets out that bullhorn and he knew This ain't no drill, baby. We gotta get out of here. So they calmly got up, they followed their training, and Rick is singing through the bullhorn. He's singing drinking songs and war songs tell everybody this is a great time to be an american because it's like together they're all going to talk about you tomorrow on tv you know be good americans help each other don't push don't shove relax 2700 people down the stairs two by two man 30 floors man that's crazy in a building of that size 2700 people that's just unbelievable the fucking fear I can't even imagine. I know. Like, so going down those steps, every step. Knowing fucking, any second yeah. this damn thing could come down, especially after, you know, the second plane hits. Right. Um, and the survivors telling these stories are so amazing. And there's a picture of him. It's the last picture ever taken of him. He's the, on the, the stairs bullhorn. with the bullhorn with his two guys, uh, security employees with him. And that's what he was doing. He's on those stairs, and he he's directing the traffic, and he's just telling them to be calm and rest. You know, he's helping certain people that need the help. I mean, the guy's just unbelievable. 
all over this building. Meanwhile, he's got prostate cancer. He's not doing well right. health-wise. He's bigger than he had ever been because they show pictures of right. him. Rick was an extremely fit guy in his youth, so I mean, I'm sure that had to weigh on him too. He's a bigger dude. He's older now, you know, and up and down these stairs like he's 20. I mean, unbelievable. You know, I can't help but wonder with his fucking, uh, you know, convictions and shit. I mean, I don't know because I'm not in a situation or anything like that. But if I was told, hey, you got cancer and your life's going to be over anyway, and I'm going to be like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to go out how I'm going out. I'm going to save this whole fucking place. And if I go out that way, I chose that. That's true. You know, that's the ultimate fuck cancer. Sure. That's a good way of looking at it, man. Um, Now, Chris, once again, just like in battle, he is calm. No matter what's going on, all hell is literally breaking loose, and he's getting hardcore. Oh, he's totally... That, I mean, think hardcore, you think going out there and rushing. He's like hardcore is in solid. <laughs> right. Solid. State. Everybody's like pillar. panicking and crying and shit. And he's right. sitting and he's there singing to singing, them. Singing, like talking to people. Telling them to say, relax. Yeah, that, that's and, hardcore. Yeah. That's a pillar. Um, now, of course, the South Tower gets hit. Um, the employees of Morgan Stanley keep going down these stairs. They're evacuating. Rick was last seen on the 10th floor stairwell. Um, as employees are leaving, he's going back up. And one of the employees says, you know, Rick, you know, you need to get out of here. And he mm-hmm. says, you know, I will when everybody's out. Yeah, it's going to but check until then, I'm, I'm here. Sweep, like, that's a lot of work right there to do yeah. everything. Go try and search for everyone. Right. And just like he did, you know, with his, the guys he lost in Vietnam, he was thinking, there's no way in hell. I'm leaving somebody. I'm going to live with leaving anybody yeah. in this building. I mean, let's put it, if all the 2,700 got out, I guarantee you Rescorla's going in there for the other people right. that had nothing to do oh, with yeah, him. Yeah. I mean, he was, was Morgan literally Stanley. not going to leave that site <laughs> unless he was the last human being right, to walk out of that building. Yeah. Then he would have left. Yeah, he would have helped. <laughs> I mean, he would have went to end. other businesses. Like, hey, I mean, that's just how he was. I'm going to be security with you guys right now. We're going to get these people out. Yeah. Right. Not to mention the added perspective. I think Joey is a good point. The added perspective of I'm going to die. I mean, like. I've got terminal cancer. I know the prognosis isn't good. And you know what? Somebody's got to be here to do this. Why not me? You know, which is still, I'm not taking anything away from the heroics of it. I'm just saying it can't help but wonder was that part of the decision of I'm not going anywhere anyway, let alone the fact that I'm terminal and I'm not going to live for another 20 years. And and like we said, he never did a thing, it seemed, for heroism. No, he he just did it it because it was the right thing to do. I mean, that's just how he was, which is just incredible to imagine. You know, there's 2,700 people, and I'm thinking Hayworth is just about 2,000. Yeah. So that's like Hayworth and then some evacuating everybody from this town. I mean, imagine that. Imagine having to do that. They're all walking down the street and you're accounting for who's where and where the... I mean, that's nuts. I mean, that's crazy. So unbelievable calmness under pressure. Um, Just amazing. Now... Not to mention, like, the reality of that situation. If you're in a fucking building that just got fucking bombed with an airplane... Right. If you fucking... 
if you fucking turn tail and haul your own ass out of there and just get out, not worry right. about no one's else. gonna look down on you for that, really, right? Because they're just fucking trying to get everybody out anyway, right? The fact that he was doing all that and helping those people fucking maintain their way out is right. That's huge. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It really is. Now, Rick's wife, Susan, is watching this unfold like the rest of us. So I can't imagine that. For any of these people who had family in there. No, Dan Hill was watching it. Fred McBee was watching it. Rick calls Dan during the evacuation, talks with him a little bit about what's going on. He also called Susan, a very poignant part of the story where he talks about telling her that she made his life and how much he loved her. I mean, that's just tough stuff to hear. You know, on the documentary, she's crying. I mean, you can't help but feel sorry for her in the situation. Some of the other documentaries I've watched, she talks about how, you know, she would put his clothes in the bed next to her so it would still smell like him. I mean, mean, I'm sure. Just unbelievable. I mean, just heart-wrenching heart-wrenching um and her story is one of thousands all those people that died they all had obviously mothers and sisters and brothers right. and husbands i mean that's what i'm it's saying it's crazy how many people were affected watching it on tv yeah. too like oh my god yeah did tommy get out of there you yeah. know type of thing um and she knew that he wasn't going to leave anyone in there so she already knew that he was not going to probably probably make not going to make it home yeah um, as the South Tower fell, of course, she knew, so did Dan, that he was gone. Um, he also, Dan Hill talks about that Rick hated the idea of getting old and having to, right. you know, so have somebody take care of you. You can't even go to the bathroom. And, yeah. and he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. Well, for Christ's sake, I don't know what yeah. more of a blaze of glory <laughs> he could have gone out on than September 11th that the tower's falling literally with you. You're going down with the damn tower. That's, That's crazy. That's pretty huge. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, I'm just, I marvel at it. I honestly do. Um, the only thing that was ever recovered from Rick, nobody ever found, was his VA ID card, Susan weird. said, perfectly intact. Yeah. Nothing marred, scratched. That is so insane. How dude. crazy. No, I- that, that that's it so is. ironic it's, it's weird it's like did he take it out or you know what i'm saying i seem to remember now i don't know if i'm imagining this or if i read or right. heard this but i seem to think that i don't know if susan told me this or i read it um where he had they think he had the card out on the desk he was making an appointment Huh. And he uh, had okay. it out. Yeah. So I don't think it may have not been on his person, but I cannot say for certain. That's what I'm saying for it to come out. It is odd. Like that. It, it is really odd. Somehow. You would think. I, I, would, I would like to think of it that somehow it, right. it yeah, just came out. That it made it out of added add to, to, to the, the mystique of yeah. Rick Rescorla. Yeah. yeah, for right. sure. Um, now. I heard a couple of different variations of this. I heard there were 12 Morgan Stanley employees that did make it out. I also heard five or six. Depending on what you watched, it was a little different. But in either instance, 2,700 people, you only lost that many. That is insane. And of the ones they lost, they were Rick and his people. And And then there were two others that didn't want to come out with the rest because they were afraid after 93 of the congestion. So they wanted to let the crowd kind of dissipate and then come in at the end. I'll go in. Yes, we'll go out with the last of them. And unfortunately, they didn't make it, okay? But 
in either instance, holy shit, it's 2,700 people. If it was 12, that's still amazing. Right. That's still amazing, okay? Um, other employers in the towers, of course, the ones above of, where yeah. the planes hit, I mean, they were doomed, um, suffered much, much higher losses. Now, CK, I mean, we know how crazy this was. Each of us could talk about our experiences. I don't want to do that here, but I can't imagine what it would have been like for anyone that lost somebody there to just keep seeing this over and over. I mean, 3,000 people were lost. That's still staggering. I can't imagine being a family member and having to live through that. Yeah, it's... um, I I know firsthand, because I had a friend who lost his dad in 9-11, so, um, you know, it it took a toll on the family. Yeah, we had some family there, but they from, uh, they got out fine. My mother worked, uh, I don't know if it was a friend from school or where she knew her, but she was a secretary, uh, and she was down in the lobby getting their mail, uh, the, whatever floor she was on, and they were all telling them, stay at your desk, stay at your desk. Anyway, she's in the lobby, and she sees pieces of the building falling, and she's like, I'm getting out of here. Yeah, yeah, I'm And I'm she leaving. calls upstairs to them, and they're laughing at her, like, oh, come on. And she's like, no, I mean, like, I'm getting out of here. Like, I'm, I'm gone. And she left, and they all died. Yeah, yeah that's oh, messed man. up. So, yeah, so I'm sure CK being where you're living and we're living at the time, I mean, you probably heard quite a few people uh, that lost people or knew someone that lost somebody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've also heard people who were supposed to be at work that yeah, day. Yeah, those are the weird other. stories. Never, yeah, you know, so strange. Uh, cousin of one of my cousin of one of my friends was supposed to go to work that day and called wow. out sick. There was one of the employees talked about he he had to bring his daughter to school and then go to work and he got hung up with Ooh. the school and didn't make it in time and li- obviously lived. I it's love like your daughter. The guilt, I, just crazy though to to be in that situation, you know. Now, I feel the story deserves to be heard. I'm really glad we uh, we decided to do this. I can't believe they haven't made a movie about him. Uh, we heard more about Flight 93 than we've ever heard of Rick right. Rescorla. And don't get me wrong, that story is amazing. Also very heroic. Yeah, what everybody did on the plane to take yeah, control. That's yeah. awesome, okay? I'm not taking anything away from that. Oh, hell no. All I'm saying is this story also should have been told. Um, I do know there is a play about Rick. I'm not sure what it's called offhand. There are books. Uh, The best one, in my opinion, is Heart of a Soldier by James B. Stewart. It's really good. There's also a YouTube video of James speaking somewhere about Rick, and it's really good because he talks about what it was like to meet Susan and to get all the info and the things she showed him about Rick and stuff. Very, very moving. Um, he actually got the title of the book from a notebook Rick kept that he got from Susan, um, and the notebook was entitled Heart of a Soldier, so that's what he called the book. Right. Uh, that was the one that I've been mentioning uh, a few different times. Now, Susan also wrote a book about Rick called Touched by a Hero, and my lyrics for the song we played earlier, Hero's Last Stand, are in the book. I was very honored that she did that. If you go to the rickrescorla.com memorial page, uh, there's a, a one of the play, uh, pages on there is uh, songs. 
you click on songs and a hero's last stand is is there with the other one so nice. there are other songs about him oh i'm sure no other metal though i was just i was just, just ready to, i was just ready to say i'm <laughs> no, sure they're not no, like the same no kind of not music. at all but it's still <laughs> awesome for sure um so yeah it's very honored now i worked with susan and rick's friend fred mcbee what happened was i watched the the on the 9 11 i was teaching a class out of town and I was in a hotel and had nothing to do. This is before Netflix and stuff, so I'm kind of watching whatever's, whatever's on, on TV. Cable, yeah. And I stumbled on this History Channel special called The Man Who Predicted 9-11, and I was fascinated. I was like, oh, my God, I've never heard of this before. And this would have only been two, three, four years afterwards, so it wasn't like that long after, but it wasn't you know fresh. Right. It was a few years removed. Right. Still amazing. So I was like, that's a crazy story. And I, I remember like, seeing that document. Like, they show it every year. Now, yeah. They show it every year. If anybody's okay. listening, I can't find it anywhere on streaming. However, I bet if you DVR it, you'll find it uh, somewhere because it'll they'll show it this week, I'm sure. Um, but anyway, I watched it. I was very moved by the story. And then I liked to do things when I was in low 12 about topics that I was very passionate about. And so I really dug in and I found the book and I read that. I was just, And then I realized the connection with how I remembered that name was from back when I was in the, in Army. the Army. And I was like, and oh, my book. God. And then that opens up that whole right, side that of the story. Get all into it it's more, crazy, sure. you know. And so I worked with Fred and uh, Fred McBee and, and Susan Rescorla. And so they also gave me these a cassette tape of some recordings that were made of Joe or from uh, uh, Rick when he was in Vietnam. And, and they're referenced in the Joe Galloway and Hal Moore follow-up to We Were Soldiers Once and Young. They wrote, we, were so, we Are Soldiers Still. And they go back to the Idrang site. They meet with the North Vietnamese general that they fought against. And it's very cool. And that book is about that. Now, in the book, they reference these rare tapes that were made at a bar in Vietnam only a few months after the I Drang battle, but that they didn't know where they were. Well, Fred McBee had those tapes, so they sent them to me because they were having an issue with a, a tape hiss on the cassette because it was so old. So I told them I had some software I could maybe try to help. So they sent me the cassette tape. I took the hiss out mostly and then put the songs on a CD forum right. as tracks, individual tracks. There's like six or seven songs that they sing. But what's interesting is this is like imagine MASH and oh, yeah, Rosie's. Yeah. That's what I, every time I like hear it's one that of the kind songs, of that's, idea. How I, that's how I think about it. Yeah, a bunch of guys after you know their shift or whatever and they're in there drinking their sorrows away and... You can hear artillery shells going off and everything around them. And They're just going to town. It's, it's just cool. And that's what this sounds like, is these guys drinking in this bar in the middle of Vietnam with all these artillery shells going off and stuff around them. Pretty crazy stuff, and I was honored to be a part of that. Um, and so they, uh, you know, they uh, you know, let me use some of it, which was really cool. And we put it at the beginning of A Hero's Last Stand and at the end. Um, and uh, they were going to sell that CD at the Infantry Museum. I don't know if they, they are, but I know that's why they, they asked me to do that. That's why they wanted it. Yeah. And to preserve it because it had that, that really loud hiss. 
I'm not sure if they did, but uh, in either case, I just thought I'd mention it. Now, Chris, it's amazing how much of an impact Rick Rescorla had on so many uh, and how he died like he wanted to and right. in and a blaze of glory. Like you, like you said, like the impact on everybody's lives, you look at his uh, radar man from when he was in Vietnam. Yeah. They were attached together with a single, with a six-foot-long cable for right. the radio. That's for, true. For the whole duration. Yeah, the whole, like yeah. six feet ta- tethered to yeah. each other, literally. Right. And some of the stories the radio operators telling, he's like, Rick's just blasting off his uh, rifle, runs out of ammo, doesn't have grenades, and so he's tossing him. The radio guy's tossing Rick his grenades and just popping motherfuckers still, dude. Yeah. Like, like a boss, dude. Like, <laughs> the, and it, like if you go out and watch some of these documentaries and these panels, the stories they yeah. have shows you real the real impact they had on people's right. lives like that. Right. It's and you think if one person would have survived one of those battles, that would be like right. a story of the ages. But yeah. then to do it that many times and then come home and then go through 9-11? I mean, Dude. holy shit. I mean, that's just it's like, uh, that's nuts. It, it also man. kind of makes me think of that movie uh, Memphis Bell, how they had to do the bomb run all the oh, bunch yeah. of times. And shit. Yeah. And like, hit, like all the times he went into battle and just came back out of it. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing story. It really is. Now, I've mentioned several books here. I would strongly suggest all of them if you want to uh, learn more about Rick. Uh, His memorial website is rickrescorla.com. We'll link to that in the episode description. There's a lot of information about him, a lot of pictures. There's some video. Uh, There's the songs, as I mentioned. Uh, There's ways you can donate. Uh, there's all sorts of things you can find out about Rick on that website. It's very, very informative. Strongly suggest it. Uh, the History Channel special called The Man Who Predicted 9-11 is very good. Um, his statue is on display, as I mentioned, at the Infantry Museum at Fort Benning, Georgia, along with the bugle that he found at the I Drang battle, which is a very significant uh, thing. Uh, the North Vietnamese would use bugles to uh, to tell their soldiers how send to signals attack. And shit. Yeah. yeah, sending signals. And so that was a very prized thing. And the fact he found one was a very special thing. And that, that was at the end. You said that was at the end of the movie. At the it, end of We Were Soldiers, yeah, he finds he it. He finds yeah. it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, so that uh, uh, bugle, as well as a piece of the steel from the World Trade Center, are part of that exhibit as well. I've never been to that museum, but I'm sure it's amazing. I did hear they have soil from every major battle the infantry was in there, and they're like on stairs, so you could like walk in their steps kind of thing. Yeah, pretty pretty cool, like covered in glass, like something cool like that. Yeah, it's not actually walking through it. Right, (laughs) it wouldn't last. Um, But it's hard to imagine (laughs) it's been 19 years since September 11th, and I've mentioned before... How I found out about my cancer uh, being in remission on that day. Um, So it's been 19 years for that. So every September 11th usually hits me in a couple of weird ways. Um, Some worse than others. I've been through, of course, now coming up on 19 of them. And, uh, you know, when I first was in remission, you know, you have to keep going back to get tested. Yeah. And CK understands what this is like. You know, you go back and you're always worried. Oh, yeah. You know, how is it going to come out? So having gone through that for five years 
after it was uh, over was still, you know, wasn't gone. And the fact that I still have neuropathy uh, from chemo uh, to this day, and that's why I wear a brace on my foot because my bones are deteriorating over it. Uh, pretty messed up. Cancer is a son of a bitch, and I know CK is dealing with it uh, still. And uh, I, my, what I went through with cancer pales in comparison uh, to what you've been through, man. So I, I know you can relate to this. Um, every September 11th really hits me hard because of those two things. Um, it was a horrible, you know, day, um, but good news with the cancer stuff for me. So very weird that it happened between the first and the second plane hitting yeah. was when I got the call. That, that was is, really weird. Yeah, it's like, oh, this sucks. Oh, this is awesome. Oh, this sucks even yeah, worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I was at a school, and I heard the, the, the first plane hit as I was pulling in, and then I stopped my car, and my nurse called and said the cancer's in remission, and then I hung up. I was like, holy crap, and then I went into the school to see if they were even going to still you know like be there yeah and they were getting the kids out of there and they were all huddled in the office and saw the second plane and that's when i was like wow like what a crazy 10 minutes you know or however long right. it was between the first well it wasn't the i was listening to the news coverage of the first plane pulled in got the call so i don't remember right, how right. far but space. Still, either way it was one the after planes, the yeah. other it was nuts um you know so, it's crazy 19 years ago was Jody pregnant when that happened? Yeah, Cole's eighteen. No, yeah. Like she was pregnant with yeah, her at yeah, that she time, was in, right? Yeah, she, oh wow. Yeah, she was pregnant with Cole, and she was in uh, uh, Salt Lake City, like, and they canceled all flights. Her, huh. her and her mom were in oh, Salt wow. Lake City, and they canceled all flights, dude. Like, wow. Oh, this sucks. Ain't going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, and CK, I mean, you were working a half hour away from there, so. That had to be yeah, like was, bedlam. Um, was, was, yeah, it was definitely scary because you didn't know what was going to happen. You know, do I go home? Right. Do I stay here? Am I am I going to be right. able to get home? You know, you, you didn't know what was yeah. going to go on. So definitely scary. It was not um, to mention there. Was, I mean, there yeah. was a third point involved at the pentagram. Right. Pentagon. The pentagram. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, once that happened, that fucking put a whole new wave of holy shit. Where right. where's where next? else? Yeah. Right, Chicago, yeah. St. Louis. Yeah, for sure. That became a super realization that oh, no, yeah. that really could happen. Yeah, how many others are there? Yeah. You know, and it was so. super weird too. That day, looking up and not seeing any like jet streams in the sky, like right. all flights landed. Right, don't fly over yeah. or anything. You're getting shot down. Yes, <laughs> um, and it's amazing to think next year will be 20 years. Um, now, admittedly, I do have a bit of uh, what I would call survivor's guilt about it, giving my good news amidst all the craziness of 9-11. And this story does make me think a lot about destiny and is there something to that? You know, did Rick survive all of what he survived just so that he was there on that day to save those people? That, that, that that's might have been what his I'm saying. Name. That's what you know makes you really think. Like, wow, like that's pretty heavy stuff. You know, did I survive cancer so that I could be doing other stuff like writing and podcasting and doing low twelve and all those things I did after that? You know, it makes me wonder. You know, it really does. You know, so. along that line, a little off topic, but you know, talking what you're talking about, one of my best friends, Joe Panky, passed away when we were you know a little bit younger and uh 
Anyhow, he had been going to college in Mattoon, got in a fucking crazy car wreck down there, and he should have died from that. Like, his testicles were hanging out, and he had to, like, hold, like, the story oh, that he wow. told us was crazy. Anyway, he should he had lacerated his fucking artery and was, like, out in the country, and nobody found him for a really long time. So. Oh, wow. So he should have passed away from that, and he didn't. He came home, back up to, to Fairbury, had a child, and then got in a car accident and passed away oh my gosh but you know it, no this is what's crazy we had a friend named brad Lehman who passed away from cancer the day that he passed and they were best best friends the day that he passed away was the night that joe went out and fucking got in the car wreck and died oh wow so they would have been each other's head pallbearer at each know, other's funeral right oh, wow. and, and they both passed away within the same time but anyway it's crazy but the destiny that you're talking about we always yeah. tried to say he came he should have died in the first place he didn't came he back had and his had child, a kid right so now his wow. child lives on wow that's heavy stuff. No, yeah, yeah. I see, I see what it makes saying. you think it really does you know so it's just crazy and uh so you know i don't know if you guys have anything you want to add to this conversation i don't think so man it's been a pretty fucking intense hardcore fucking yeah ride i think i think we covered everything that was yeah. awesome the, the only thing i would say i love the whole episode but we were talking about you know if we remember what we were doing 9-11 i told my story which is not right. a pro, it's not really appropriate right. for this one but right if you're a mermel mayhem listener and you might right. remember it if not i can't tell you where it was at but go back and listen yeah pretty yeah funny. i do remember that was a funny and i actually thought about that when i was writing yeah. the notes i'm like yeah we'll leave that out yeah. <laughs> like i said what I mean, we were doing that, on that, September that, that was my experience exactly that's no. what happened but you know yeah. I, I think this episode though was was really good good I, i'm glad i learned a lot even more cool. you know just from hearing it from you cool i yeah I, like i said i appreciate you guys giving me the the opportunity to do this episode because it does uh have something special to me as well now i know this has definitely been different um but we hope you guys like the story of rick rescorla and his heroism and do find some inspiration in it uh with all the negative stuff going on sometimes it's good to think about something positive for a change and certainly Rick's bigger-than-life attitude and hardcore tenacity is definitely something that I think about often. Uh, you know, there's days where I'm sore, I'm tired, and it's like, man, think about Res Corla, man. Like, he wouldn't have given up, you know. Like, that's pretty he, pussy. You know, get that, up and dust yourself off and get back in there. There was that one quote there, in know? one of the, like, interviews, like, before you die, they were interviewing. He's, what was he saying? He's basically like, you got to live up to what you say, like, I don't, I don't want to be a soft guy. I'm a tough guy, and if you're gonna say you're a tough guy, you got to go out there and you got to prove that. Right. And that's what he was about. Like I'm yeah. out there proving everything I say. Everything I say, I'm gonna do. Right. Yeah. And I hope you know that you guys like that. I've always been fascinated with the story, and the guy's just a true American hero, especially wasn't even born here yeah came here to fight in vietnam Hell because yeah. he wanted to be a part of it so it that, that is makes it's, it's just nuts i'm moving to a different country it's, just to go to war right because <laughs> i want to eradicate communism right. it wasn't like he's like this war hungry freak right it's he just, was just he had a wanted to get rid of it you know yeah, he, he didn't wanted to like it the t like you said the communism that he had a he had a 
goal. Like, this is not good for the world in general. Right. And he but, worked in the epicenter of capitalism. Right. Yeah, right. That's true. <laughs> now, uh, thanks for checking us out. Uh, you can go to MurderMetalMayhem.com to listen to all our episodes. Uh, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you could support the show. Join that 666 Club. Be a Patreon member. And uh, we'll have all the links to this stuff in the episode description so you can get that way. Uh, thanks again. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. And we'll yeah. leave you with a little uh, Rick and his platoon singing in 1965, only a few months after that I Drang Valley battle. So uh, have a good one, y'all. Yeah, hell yeah. Horns high. Later, guys. Take care. The next song is The Legend of the 7th Cavalry. Written by Lieutenant Rescorla. And during this song, Lieutenant Rescorla will also sing the solo part. Sergeant Flynn Against two braves they did muster Sergeant Flynn Crazy horse and sitting bow Have got their bellies full Of lead and steel from men to carry on 